they keep bringing you down? Are they gonna bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. That's always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get shuffled, even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, back from vacation. I thought about going through the weekend without doing a Friday show, since I've already been gone for a week, basically, and uh, decided I just couldn't do it. I missed you guys too much. You needed to get back in the seat and uh, back to doing the show. So since it is a Friday, we're going to do a call-in Friday, which means I have uh, a lot of your questions uh, queued up. Got stuff today on jury nullification. Got stuff on keeping birds from eating your berries. Uh, got questions on the SKS carbine and a bunch of other cool stuff. We'll get to that in just a second, though. Before we do that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one, Backyard Food Production. That's Marjorie down there just south of Austin, somewhere in that general vicinity anyway, who has set up an amazing food production machine, we'll just call it that, uh, on her little homestead. And uh, put together a DVD of exactly how they did it. This is everything from raising rabbits, chickens, and geese uh, to gardening with uh, conventional gardening and permaculture brought in. Growing food not just for yourself but for your livestock and a tremendous amount of other things. It is probably the best DVD I've ever viewed on the subject because of how uh, detailed it is and how many uh, new concepts there are. And it comes with a second disc that is uh, probably worth the price of the first one just in documents that have been gathered for you that you can view on doing different projects. So check out Backyard Food Production today. If you don't own the DVD yet, I have one question for you. Why not? Next up today is ShelfReliance.com. Notice I said shelf, not self. Shelf is in the shelves that you place your food on. Some really innovative food storage stuff. Check out ShelfReliance.com. Remember, if you're part of the Member Support Brigade, you get a discount of an additional 7% off of any of their existing offers. Well, that's a pretty good deal and a pretty good reason to join the Members Brigade. Uh, I also uh, have them sending me one of their cancellator products. This is like a smaller food storage unit that's designed to go into conventional pantries. That should be here soon. I'll be doing a review for that of that for you on YouTube. So that segues nice into our next little housekeeping segment. Make sure you are subscribed to YouTube. Make sure you are following me on Twitter. And make sure you join our f Facebook fan page. I need your help with the Facebook thing. Um, I mentioned before that Brian Black and I had a little bit of a rivalry going on because he was just over 3,000 Facebook fans and I was just under. Now, this is not my personal fan page uh, I need you guys to do. I need you to search on Facebook for the thesurvivalpodcast.com and uh, become my fan. Say so you like that page and uh, add it to your favorites. Um, here's the deal. Uh, Brian has turned into a snake, and I mean that in the nicest way I can when I call somebody a snake. Um, 
his wife listens to the show and told him that I had mentioned our little rivalry, and uh, he published a thing on his blog saying that we had a bet, and that the loser had to buy dinner and do a hundred push-ups. And here's the problem with that, folks: we never discussed that bet. He came up with that bet all on his own, and now, uh, now I guess he figures that uh, if he wins, I have to buy dinner and do push-ups. Well, that's not the way you have a bet. So you have a bet between two people. So I need your help, not just to beat him in August with the, the most uh, additional fans on my fan page. We need to crush him now. We absolutely need to crush him because that's a snake-type bet. You make a bet, you make it public, but you don't make the bet with the other party. So please, if you haven't got around to uh, f- uh, fanning me on Facebook yet, do that today. Just search for the Survival Podcast. Find my fan page. Do that because I want to... Uh, I want to respond in kind here by uh, making him do the push-ups and buy the dinner uh, that he came up with on his own and was kind enough to tell everyone on his blog about, but didn't tell me about. All right. Uh, that said, he's still still one of my best friends, folks, but I'm still going to beat his brains in with this contest. All right. Last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Do that. You get exclusive content available only to members. And uh, we'll leave it at that today because you don't need to hear me publicize my members brigade after I took a week and a half off. So let's get into the main topic today. Let's go ahead and take your first question. Hi, Jack. Me again with another gardening question. Um, I hear the grasshoppers are supposed to be really bad here in northern Wyoming as well as other parts of the country. So what are some things we can do to ward off these little critters? They're already starting to take a toll, and I'm seeing a lot of them. Thanks. Well, you know, good question, and I have a few different ideas for you. Number one, I don't know what your place is like and how much space you have, but if you have like a small farm or a few acres or something like that where you're keeping some livestock as well, uh, definitely chickens will do a lot to eliminate grasshoppers. So a good little flock of five to ten birds, uh, I promise you they'll do a lot to thin the numbers out. Now, if you think chickens will do a good job on grasshoppers, the all-powerful grasshopper vacuum machine is the turkey. I don't know if you have room for turkeys or if you want turkeys, but um, turkeys will convert grasshoppers into turkey meat, into turkey eggs. Uh, they'll do it efficiently, extremely efficiently. They they uh, they relish grasshoppers. So those are two uh, livestock-based control methods that you can use. Um, I have to tell you, I've never had a lot of problems with grasshoppers in the garden, even in areas. I don't have a lot of them around here in uh, the Arlington, Texas area, but certainly where we uh, we gardened with my grandfather's garden up in Pennsylvania, there were grasshoppers all over in the high grass, uh, but they never seemed to be that big of a problem with the crops. We'd get them in there once in a while, but not that bad, uh, and that was even without uh, chickens as a control method after the chickens were gone when they got too old to take care of the chickens anymore. So um, I don't know that you're going to have that big of a problem with typical garden crops uh, with with grasshoppers to begin with. So let's say that the uh, having birds is out, and let's say that you're having a problem with them. Um, the problem with the grasshopper as a pest in the garden is you need a rather large predator to uh, to take them out because they're a large pest. Uh, so other than things like large spiders and wasps, a lot of the things that we would typically use for organic control, uh, like ladybugs and lacewings, are going to be very ineffective on a very big, uh, tough predator like grasshoppers. And where you're at... Uh, you know, you always have the potential for something worse than a grasshopper, which is a locust. And if that happens, I, I, I don't really know what to say. But with grasshoppers, um, you could look at some of the organic controls like soaps and all like that. But I don't think you're going to get that effective of a of a uh, an effect on, on them be- unless you spray them directly. So 
You might walk around once in a while with something like a tennis racket or a badminton racket and play grasshopper badminton uh, or grasshopper tennis. When I was a kid, we used to uh, shoot them. <laughs> I'm not kidding either. Uh, we would get 22s with dust shot and these grass, the big winged ones in the high grass that would fly and kind of twist and twirl. We'd use them as practice for uh, bird hunting. Because uh, if you could hit that at, uh, let's say, 10 yards out with a uh, .22 scatter shot, uh, you probably could do pretty well at 20 yards out on a grouse getting up with a uh, 12-gauge shotgun. So uh, those are some other, I guess, creative methods. But your best controls outside of livestock with grasshoppers are going to be mechanical, meaning that uh, you occasionally go out and catch some or kill some because they're not an easy pest to kill uh, with, with smaller predators. There are a few other things that you can try, though. Um, first of all, there's a couple plants that you can plant in your garden in large quantities as a companion plant that tend to be very repulsive to grasshoppers. One is an herb called whorehound, and the other is uh, a very um, very useful herb called cilantro, and uh, or also known as coriander if you let it grow to the point where it produces seeds. So you plant a lot of whorehound and cilantro in your garden, you'll have a pretty decent uh, repellent effect. They also don't like garlic, and you can use garlic oil uh, mixed with water and sprayed as a repellent. That will uh, will actually help. Calendula is also known to be very repellent to grasshoppers, though in the heat of the summer it doesn't grow very well. That's calendula, also known as pot marigold. Um, they're also very uh, grasshoppers tend to be attracted to monoculture, so they like a whole stand of the same thing. So the more companion planting you're doing, the interplanting you're doing, the less grasshopper control uh, that you're going to have from uh, gra grasshopper control you're going to need in the first place. Excuse me. Uh, and then the next thing is you can pretty much plant any kind of nitrogen-fixing crop, and, and grasshoppers don't tend to like that, like beans, peas, and things like that. So they're, they're resistant in and of themselves, and again, that would make a good companion prop, uh, plant. Uh, again, garlic oil spray might be something good. Uh, you can make, uh, there is a, a, a organic control you can use, and it's called Nosema locustae. And it's a little parasite that infects and kills grasshoppers when they ingest it, and uh, can last a long time. And since the grasshoppers are cannibalistic, they eat each other, and uh, then they, they die in, in large quantities. Uh, the problem is that it won't generally work on the adult uh, grasshoppers. It's the young as they're growing, so it's something you want to get down early in the year. It may be a l bit late for that. You can make traps for them, take jars, bury them in the ground, fill them halfway with water, float some uh, uh, molasses on top of the, them, and they'll, they'll go in there. Slugs tend to go into things like that, too. Um, neem oil can work, but it generally works only on the nymph stage, so it's not very effective uh, on the adults. So there's all of the things that I know that you can possibly do to control grasshoppers. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a wide assortment there, and uh, the, uh, the parasite control method may be the best thing to do if you have problems this year, but it's going to be much more effective uh, using it next year than trying to use it this year where they're already so far along. So this year, I'd stick to bringing some birds in, keeping your crops well interplanted, adding some uh, cilantro and whorehound, And, um, you know, maybe doing some garlic spraying and maybe erecting some uh, net barriers as well would be helpful. Hopefully that will help you. Let's go ahead and take another question. Hey, Jack. This is Justin in Boston, otherwise known as Hiltonizer on the forums. Uh, my ears perked up the other day when you mentioned possibly doing a show including uh, covering jury nullification. This is something that's been popped up on my radar recently. 
as a, as a big part of the Free State Project in New Hampshire and uh, an effective tool against fighting against otherwise unethical or unconstitutional laws, um, primarily here in the state of Massachusetts. Uh, a lot of juries have been nullifying crimes against uh, carrying a gun without a license, regardless of whether or not the individual in question did not have a proper Massachusetts license, where the only victim was the state by not receiving their money. I believe this is something that should be covered more frequently amongst freedom activists, libertarians in general, and I'd like you to weigh in a little bit more on your thoughts on jury nullification, and I wanted to point out a website that I was directed to frequent, uh, recently, rather, uh, FIJA.org, which is the free Freedom of Information uh, for Juries Activist website. Uh, it provides a lot of information on how juries can exercise their right to nullify laws that are unjust to them constitutionally or otherwise unethical. I uh, appreciate your comment on this, and I know this is a call-in show, but I hope you could do a uh, much more in-depth episode in the future uh, regarding information that you find relevant to the subject. I uh, appreciate it. Thanks for the great work. Well, th this is one that I, I, you know, as I think about it, Justin, you're right. I need to get off my ass and do a full show on jury nullification. And maybe this is a good show for me to get an expert on here to talk to uh, to you guys about it. Um, one name springs to mind that I think would be quite um, interesting to talk about this with, if I can coax him onto the air, would be David Duffy from Backwoods Home. I think he would have a uh, lot to say on the subject and uh, would be quite an insightful speaker on it. Or maybe we could get somebody else. There was an author at Backwoods Home that I first really learned about this topic from um, a while ago. And it was uh, Gary Armit. Uh, and maybe I could get him on to talk about it if Dave is too shy to come on. But let's just talk about, first of all, what the hell is jury nullification? What does that mean? What is it all about? Well, here's the... the, the, the This is a hard one to really explain because you have to basically believe that judges are full of shit. And, and they are full of shit. Uh, in, in general, if there's a case to be uh, tried and you are selected for a jury, you'll get instructions from a judge along these lines. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, you are here to judge the guilt or the innocence of the accused for the charges of X, Y, and Z, and that is all. Your opinion about the law is not really in question here. It is simply whether or not the law exists and was the law violated. That is your job. That is your duty. That's a lie. That is absolutely a lie. And judges have been lying to juries about that for, for you know as long as we've had judges and juries. The entire reason that we have a trial by jury system in the United States is so that the people remain in control of the law. Meaning that if the government were to pass a law stating something like, you can no longer have free speech, and then you went out and said, I do hereby declare that the government is wrong, and they put you on trial and said that you needed to go to jail for five years for violation of an unconstitutional law, that a jury of your peers, understanding that this law is unjust, would clear you. So as a juror, you are there to judge not just the person but the law. And it has been done, and it has often been done, and it has been the reason for the repeal of things um, like Prohibition. Prohibition actually became unenforceable after a while. It got to a point where they could put people on trial and nobody would convict anybody. No jury would convict anybody for the possession uh, or consumption of alcohol. Just couldn't get it done. And 
I think that, you know, here's the thing. Just because it exists doesn't mean that people will, one, believe it, and will, two, follow it, or three, agree with you. In other words, you could have a jury of 12 people, and the person could be tried for unlawful carry of a weapon. And even if everybody else on the jury buys into your belief that juries can nullify, <clears throat> they may not feel that this is something worth nullifying. So your challenge as a, as a patriot with jury nullification is to not only be aware of it, not only understand it, but be able to communicate it to your fellow members of the jury and then be at peace with the fact that they may disagree with you. That's, but see, that's how a jury system is supposed to work. And if, if I was serving on a jury, I wouldn't have a tremendous problem with people saying, well, okay, I accept jury nullification, but I'm not going to do it. That's the way the system is supposed to work. I might not agree with their take on it. I might wish to persuade them, but I don't like the fact that people have been lied to and told that we are simply to judge whether or not the law has been violated. Because if that was the case, we wouldn't need a jury system in the first place. The jury system isn't just to protect the accused from fraudulent evidence or from crooked judges. It's also to protect the people from the government. And see, that's something that no one really understands in this country. Every piece of our governmental structure was designed with a system of checks and balances. So we're taught about this in school that, well, you know, the executive branch, the presidency, can't just do something. They need the legislative to pass the law and the executive branch to execute it. And that way they have to compromise and work together so that one side can't run away with power. And then the judiciary is a check on all three. What they leave out is that the ultimate check is the people. And we're given that check and our ability to vote uh, and control who gets in the office, both in the executive and legislative branches, and because of that, who gets to appoint the judiciary. But we're also the final check on whether or not a law has been violated or if the law should exist in the first place because as a jury we have the power to nullify, which simply means to make the law moot, Or, or, or inconsequential by voting not guilty. So in a, a jury, for instance, if you were to be uh, sitting in front of a per place where a man was charged with illegal possession of a handgun uh, in a city like Chicago with a handgun ban before the recent overturning of that by the Supreme Court, you would have the same powers as the Supreme Court to overturn that, not by saying we don't believe that the law is just, simply by coming back with a verdict of not guilty. So no matter how well the prosecution's laid out its case, if the jury says not guilty, the guy walks and goes free. Now, in one case, this doesn't have a huge impact. But when it becomes over and over, that every time we take a try, got a trial for this offense, the jury turns it away, the law becomes a moot point. It just doesn't have any effect anymore. And sooner or later, it gets repealed. Because clearly people aren't willing to convict people for its violation. So that, that's kind of it in a nutshell. I will put together a whole show on it. I'll see if I can get us a, a guest on here as well that's maybe a little more informed than I am. Because that's what I know of jury nullification. Uh, there are many instances of it occurring, though. And maybe I'll do some research and get some uh, more examples of where that happened. I will put a link to the website uh, that was mentioned by the caller there, Justin, which is actually the fully informed jurors Uh, association, I believe. And, uh, and the article I mentioned on Backwoods Home, those will be in today's show notes. Let's go ahead and take another question. Hey, Jack, I have a quick question. They're growing blueberries, and uh, mockingbirds keep taking them. What's a good natural way to keep the mockingbirds from stealing the berries? But 
Um, I kind of like keeping the mockingbirds around, uh, so I don't really want to get rid of them, but I don't want them eating my berries. Uh, thanks for everything. I'm, I'm pretty new to this, and I'm learning how to incorporate all these things that you've been uh, providing, so I really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, there's another problem I've never had. I guess my first question would be, are you sure they're mockingbirds? Um, mockingbirds are mostly, mostly insectivores. They're, uh, they're big on eating insects, and they're a great bird to have around because they're highly predatory. Um, not big seed and fruit eaters. I guess they might eat fruits once in a while. Your best defense against birds with berries, though, no matter what the bird is or what the berry is, is nets. Uh, nets are inexpensive, cheap, easily easily deployed, and you only need to put them on once the berries begin to ripen. So you can leave the net off all the way up to the point where your fruit starts to ripen. Apply the netting. That's you know the birds will still get a th few through the nets, but it'll give you the vast majority will be protected. You remove the nets when you're doing your picking. Put them back on. Best way to go. Easiest thing to do. Some other things you can try. Uh, hanging little strips of tin foil in the area has been said to scare birds away. Though I've tried it and I had them on like a little stick and the birds were landing on the stick that was hanging the tinfoil. So that didn't seem to work very well. And I've also heard of people using uh, rubber snakes to keep birds at bay. Never tried that one. Might work, but I'm skeptical. I, I really am. Uh, I guess the, the other thing that I've seen be quite effective in repelling birds from an area, though, is uh, like one of the big giant uh, plastic hawks or owls. That I have seen work. But that may keep them too far away. I mean, that's something you can try, and obviously it's not permanent. You put up the, the great horned owl or something like that, and uh, it works. And if it works too well, you can always remove it. But, you know, there's a reason that commercial uh, berry operations rely on netting. Cheap, effective, easy to install, easy to remove. And completely organic, it doesn't really hurt anything. So that's what I would advise you to do to protect your blueberries and any other fruit. And uh, if you can, uh, get a picture of whatever these birds are that are taking these blueberries and send them. I'm not saying you don't know what a mockingbird is, but I've just never seen mockingbirds eat fruit. I'm wondering if maybe what you have are catbirds. Uh, but they're also a tremendous insect eater. They're about the closest thing physically to a mockingbird that I know of. I'd like to see what's eating your berries, man. So if you can get a picture of that, send that to Jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com and let me uh, see the little guy that's stealing your berries. But go to Nets and uh, let's get and take another question. Hi, Jack. My name is Ryan and I'm from Helena, Montana. I have a financial question for you that involves balancing financial responsibility or independence and personal happiness. For brevity, I won't elaborate on my motivation, but I consider it a personal necessity to purchase a water ski boat in the next couple of years. My question is this. What are your thoughts on either keeping my current 30-year mortgage and financing the boat traditionally or refinancing to a 15-year mortgage and cashing out equity to purchase the boat? I am one and a half years into a 30-year mortgage at 4.875% on a home I plan to stay in for at least 15 years. I have a wife and two children, and the only debt I have is on one vehicle and my home. No credit card debt. I have at least three months of income saved up and most basic preps. I have locked a rate of 3.875% for the 15-year mortgage. Based on this, the monthly payments for each scenario are within $100 of each other and are near the upper limit of what I can afford. Although I hate the thought of financing the boat for 15 years, I am essentially spending $6,000 in interest on the cashed-out equity in order to save $90,000 in interest by going to a 15-year loan. My greatest concern is that our budget will be tight for a few years. However, the rewards are having our house paid off in half the time, 
realizing huge savings in interest and being able to purchase a boat before I'm too old to ski competitively. To me, this seems like a win-win situation in that I can be mostly financially responsible and at the same time realize one of my lifelong goals. Thanks for your thoughts on this. Yeah, it's kind of a Dave Ramsey question more than a Jack Spearco question, but um, maybe that's why you threw it my way. I hope you don't want me to tell you go ahead and do it. It's okay. Because if that's what you're looking for, you're not going to get that here. Let's look at your scenarios. Number one, it looks to me like you can refinance your house to 15 years and save an ass load of money. And that your payment on the house itself, if we leave the boat payment out, isn't going to go up that much. So if the refi on the house to 15 years works, do it. Okay, definitely. The boat, no. Uh, as far as your other debt, one, congratulations for having no credit card debt. That's great. But you never push a budget to your upper level of what you can afford. Because it means if one thing goes wrong with what you know your, your income is, the whole system falls apart and doesn't work. You want to see an organization that operates that way? Look at the United States government. You do not operate like the freaking United States government. I don't care that it's your dream. I don't care that it's what you want. You don't do things you can't afford, period, the end. I'm sorry, and I don't mean to sound mean. I'm just being honest with you. Now, let's look how we can get you what you want without, you know, risking the safety and security of your family in your home. All right. So let's say we refinance the house and we don't buy the boat. So then we save a boat payment, which I'm going to estimate, if you have to do this for 15 years, it's going to be you're buying one of these big, badass, freaking noisy ski boats that annoy me while I'm fishing, right? Now, since we have a 90-day emergency fund set up, instead of, you know, getting us into a situation where uh, we, we can't afford to do what we want to get done, let's say we take that three to $400 boat payment and we apply it to that payment on your vehicle. How long are we then from paying your vehicle off? Odds are we'll be able to pay that vehicle off in two years or less, and now we're debt-free except the house. Now we have the money that we've been putting aside extra to pay on the vehicle, and the money that we have been putting as an outlay against uh, the vehicle debt. We have those two pieces of financing put together. Now, let's say that the vehicle payment is somewhere in the neighborhood of $400, typical for the average American. So let's say we have about $800 a month now, two years down the road. Um, that's an awful lot of money to be stockpiling away. And if at the same time, if you really want this boat, you're cutting your expenses anywhere else that you can and saving money, odds are that you can put together a pretty nice stockpile of cash um, outside of your 90 days of your retirement, and maybe you can buy that boat for cash in five to six years. And you might think, damn, that's a long time. But it's a hell of a lot less time than 15 years, isn't it? And you'd be amazed what will happen if you make that your goal and why you're doing these things. The other thing I'll tell you is, it sounds to me like you're buying a brand new, very expensive boat that's going to lose 50% of its value the day you put it in the lake for the first time. So maybe we need to back off our aspirations of how expensive this boat needs to be. I mean, you have to make these decisions for yourself. But if you called in for me to validate your decision just because it's your dream to own a boat to go into debt to a point where you can barely make your payments for the next 15 years and you just barely get by, you called the wrong guy. Because that's, I don't care what your dreams are, that's not responsible for taking care of yourself, taking care of your family, and make sure you stay in your house. You can justify the math any way that you want, but what it comes down to is you're taking debt you cannot afford. You absolutely cannot afford this debt. 
And you can hear it in your voice that you already know this. So what the real goal... Now, here's the other thing. What is the real goal? The real goal is to ski competitively. So I don't know the skiing circuit, but maybe we need to look at other ways that we can get out there and ski competitively without owning our own boat. Maybe it's something like teaming up with another skier. Maybe it's something like renting boats during the time of the year that you can actually ski in Montana. Because I'm thinking, when do you guys ski in Montana? Three to four months out of the year? Let me tell you something. Back when I was debt-ridden myself, and I didn't think this way, even down here in Texas, looking out your window and having to make a boat payment on a boat that has icicles hanging off of it is not fun. And in Montana, that boat is going to be docked more than you're going to be out there using it. How often are you going to ski? I mean, I know I sound like I'm being like a school teacher or a principal or something or a mean dad or something here, but look, the cost of this doesn't have to be as high as you've convinced yourself it needs to be. So what I'm going to tell you is your real goal isn't to own a boat. Your real goal is to ski and to hopefully ski competitively. Focus on that goal instead of the boat ownership. The boat ownership is just a means to get there. I'm also going to recommend that maybe you check out a book by Tim Ferriss called The 4-Hour Workweek because maybe it'll help put that in perspective a little bit more for you where you can do your skiing without putting yourself into massive amounts of debt. Best I can do with that one, let's go ahead and take another question. Hi, Jack. This is Kevin. I live on the Oregon coast, and I'm a longtime listener of the Survival Podcast. Really love your show, and I've learned a lot from it. My question is, is what do you think of... Um, SKS, either, either just a vanilla one like a Norinco or, or a Russian or basically any of the models, what do you think of them as the optimum survival uh, firearm uh, based on the fact that they're still relatively ex- inexpensive and you can get ammo for them in bulk uh, pretty easily and the prices have come down quite a bit. Anyways, long story short, I just was curious what you thought of them as kind of the prototypical, perfect, well-balanced um, survival rifle. Thanks a lot. Here we have another person asking me to do something I'm not going to do, and that's to call any gun the perfect survival rifle. Let's talk about the gun in question, though. The SKS, particularly the, uh, you know, the kind of the knockoff, uh, cheap variants of it, like the Naranka. Is it a good rifle? It's a good rifle. It, it, it works. It functions admirably. Um, it has a capacity limitation of about 10 rounds, and, uh, I think you'll find that if you play with that rifle using 10-round stripper clips, it's pretty quick to reload, and if you do things like try to put 30-round magazines on it, you're going to ruin it. It's very reliable functionality. Uh, There's kits where you can make them take AK mags and all, and they just never seem to work out well. It's a 10-round rifle. Uh, It has limitations in range, but it's certainly you know able to shoot minute of a bad guy out to 100 yards. Ammunition is dirt cheap, uh, as ammunition goes today anyway, and it is plentiful and available. It will function damn near as reliably, not quite as reliably, but damn near as reliably as an AK-47. Um, so is it the perfect survival rifle? I don't know. What do you want out of a survival rifle? See, this is personal. This is like saying, well, what's the perfect car? You know, for me, a, a perfect car, and for you, a perfect car, probably two entirely different things. Do you want this primarily as a hunting implement because your plans for any type of major catastrophe involve living out, you know, way out away from civilization and using it as a hunting tool? It'll work for that. Is it optimum for that? No. Um, if you were, are you, you know, where's, what type of defensible situation are you going to set up? Do you have a long line of sight where you could utilize a very accurate rifle at longer distances if you had to? 
you know, uh, is it optimum for that? No, it, you know, it, 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 it is what it is. It's a good rifle, and it's better than nothing, and it may be if you were trying to put together a group, which I obviously am not a big fan of putting together groups in the way that they're usually thought of, but if you were doing that, at least everybody could be armed very inexpensively with common components and common parts, but it's not the perfect anything. It's no more the perfect survival rifle than the AR is the perfect survival rifle, or that the AK is the perfect survival rifle. Each tool that's built out there in the firearms world is built with a specific purpose. They're all purpose-built. The SK was designed as a purpose-built um, combat arm during an interim phase between going from a point where most people that were armed in our militaries were either using bolt actions or large, heavy-caliber semi-autos like uh, the M1 Garand. And it was this gap between the world of the M1 Garands and the Mausers, right, and going to the world of the AR and the AK-47s and the FALs and everything else that we have today. It was a bridge between those two worlds. And that's what it is, and that's what it was built for. So as a combat arm, light, effective, cheap, reliable, it's very, very good. And that's the best I can do with it for you. Can't tell you it's perfect. Can't tell you it's exactly what everybody should have. Because honestly, honestly, if I can afford one, I would much rather to have a AK-47 or an AR-15 uh, with uh, parts to uh, replace them. Now, you want to debate between the two of those? You can do that forever. You can absolutely do that forever. But AK or um, SKS versus Sharp Stick, SKS. You know, SKS versus uh, Big Heavy Club with a nail in it, SKS. SKS versus no gun at all. SKS. SKS versus uh, in a in a true you know situation where I have to defend myself, I can have an SKS or just about any handgun. Uh, I'm going to go with the SKS. It's a better tool uh, as long as I can carry it. You know the handgun. The big deal with the handgun is I can carry it in places where I couldn't carry an SKS. But if I can have my choice between just about any handgun and SKS, I'm going to take an SKS. But you give me other options, and it's probably not going to be my first choice. It just isn't. Fun to shoot? Hell yes. Um, and again, cheap and expensive? Hell yes. Should everybody that can own one own at least one of them while they're cheap? You're damn right. I think it's a, it's a great thing to own. And you know you can buy them on CNR licenses as well, which is, uh, especially like the old Yugos and stuff, very inexpensively still. So uh, definitely a good gun. Perfect. I don't believe that exists. So I'm not going to call this one perfect. Or just about anything else. If you wanted the closest thing to perfect, uh, is going to be the AKs. I, I, I really feel that way, even though I uh, there's a lot of things that I have affinity for the AR above. But when it comes down to a combat weapon, it's tough to beat the AK. Let's take another question. Hi, Jack. This is Phil Chandler calling from across the Atlantic uh, from BioBees.com. You may remember I sent you a, a file on how to make a beehive, which you kind of put on your site. A um, couple of things. You mentioned recently you had a question from a disabled listener on your show about uh, preparing and stuff that they could do uh, despite their disability. Um, the type of beekeeping I teach is most suitable for disabled people. It's the only, about the only style of beekeeping there is because it can be done on a single level and there's no heavy lifting involved. So anyone that's interested in that, if they want to email me at phil at biobees.com, 
uh, anything if they want to tell me about their disability and I will send them a free copy of my ebook version of the Barefoot Beekeeper, which they might find helpful and interesting. Um, this is for people with disabilities, so um, anyone else, they can buy it from my website very easily. Um, the other thing is, uh, I'd like maybe it would be worth thinking about the idea that um, a beehive could be a really useful, uh, what I call a living pharmacy. In, in, in a survival situation, having a beehive in your homestead uh, where you can extract things like propolis, which is a very powerful antibacterial, antiseptic agent, and things like beeswax, which can be very useful, and also honey, which also has medicinal value. Um, something to consider for, uh, for your listeners for survival purposes. So think about having a beehive on your homestead for that reason alone. Okay, thanks very much, Jack. Enjoy. Well, Phil, first of all, one, thanks for donating the uh, the ebook that's in the Members Brigade on building uh, uh, beehives. So, uh, folks, if you're in the Members Brigade, you might want to check that out. And if you are a disabled person interested in beekeeping, please kindly email Phil, and uh, he'll send you a copy of his uh, Barefoot Beekeeper uh, book in ebook format. Uh, that's very kind of you to do that as well to help out the disabled person. Please, no one abuse that. I don't expect that out of this audience, but I got to say it. Please, no one abuse that and say you're disabled when you're not, or you know your disability is that you uh, you like Twinkies a lot or something like that. I don't know. Um, But I'll tell you what, there's something there at the end that I never really thought of, and that is the pharma, pharma, pharmacy value, let's say, of a beehive and uh, the things that that would do for you. So what I'm going to do, folks, is I'm going to email Phil, and even though he's across the pond, as they say, um, Skype makes that not that big of a challenge uh, from a standpoint of cost, and I'm going to see if he'd be interested in coming on for an interview about beekeeping and about the uh, pharmacological uses of uh, bee products. Um, it's really uh, an amazing thing to think about uh, how much value there is in something as simple as a hive of bees. And this is something that, you know, I've known there's some health benefits there, but I've really never pondered, you know, antibacterial effects and things like that. So I'll see if I can get Phil on. And again, Phil, thank you for your contributions uh, to the show thus far. And uh, thank you for reaching out across the Atlantic Ocean Uh, to connect with people that are part of the Survival Podcast community. And, uh, folks, God, don't those British guys have just amazing voices? Uh, man, that's, uh, it always amazes me how much more sophisticated they seem to sound, even if they're talking about something, uh, like how to put a, a, a nail in a wall. They, uh, they seem to make it sound sophisticated. So, uh, thanks for, uh, calling in, Phil, and, uh, thanks for that input, and I'll see what I can do to get you on the show sometime in the future. Hi, Jack. This is Chris from Ohio. I have a two-part question for you. Uh, one, I was wondering if you know if potatoes can be grown as a fall crop. Um, the reason I'm asking is because my potatoes have done pretty bad this year because of some uh, wet spring weather. And the second question is, uh, if we were depending on those uh, potatoes or whatever we have in the garden uh, for food, I was wondering what you would do to hedge against crop failures in a survival situation. Thanks. Okay, man, two great questions. Here's the first one. This is easy. Can you grow potatoes as a fall crop? In some instances, they may actually do better in the fall than the spring because it's less wet, which is the enemy of potatoes with things like blight, and uh, because they are actually a cool-weather crop. Uh, that said, they are not a cold-weather crop, and that is an issue for you in Ohio. This is what you have to do. You have to look at the potatoes that you would be growing, 
you have to get days to harvest, and then you have to count forward to your first uh, major frost date. You can probably get by with uh, a very mild frost, but definitely not a freeze. Uh, and even a heavy frost is going to kill potato plants. So that's what it's going to come down to is do you have enough time between days to plant and days to harvest to your average first full frost date? And that's going to be the same whether you're in Ohio or Florida, except you're going to have more time in Florida than Ohio. And that's all there is to it with any fall crop uh, that can't handle frost or freeze. How long do you have? Period. Uh, if you have a greenhouse, obviously maybe you can extend that doing things like growing them in tires or something like that. The other question, though, is the more important one. What do you do to hedge against this in a survival situation? Obviously, if you were depending on the potatoes uh, out of your garden this year, you'd have a real problem. In fact, you might have a huge problem because unlike, let's say, having a tomato failure, uh, your potatoes would probably be one of your main calorie crops. Uh, a lot of the things that we grow in the garden are good for nutritional value, but not so much caloric value. In other words, There's a lot of nutrition in a salad made out of spinach and uh, and lettuce and arugula and things like that, but it's not a lot of calories. So we, we tend to depend on things that are uh, protein and fat-based to make up the caloric balance of something that is, like, let's say, heavily salad-based. So maybe we have some roasted chicken with that salad, and that balances that out. Well, in a survival situation, that may not be uh, possible, or it may not be the po possible all the time, and we need something that's storable with a high caloric value. So it's not can we have a hedge against not having potatoes. It's a get how, how can we hedge against not having sufficient caloric value of a storable item. So there's a couple things we could do to make up for that with potatoes. Another calorie crop could be sweet potato, which is immune to many of the uh, problems that plague potato. Uh, that's not going to be a good fall crop. They, they like the heat. So that would be something for next year. Uh, to maybe plant some sweet potatoes. The other thing is to plant more than one variety of potato and keep them far apart from each other uh, so that maybe you have two different varieties and over time you determine the varieties that are most resistant to the common problems in your area. This is why you should have a garden now. Because now that you haven't grown potatoes, you go out and buy a few sacks of potatoes and you're par for the course. In a survival situation, that may not be an option. So you've learned now that whatever variety of potato you tried to grow, and you tried to grow that in the spring, in Ohio, in your area, the way you did it doesn't work. So now you've got to change things. You can start with the variety. You can, you can look at the method. But I'll tell you what you don't want to do. Do not plant potatoes in the same place you planted them this year, in the fall, or next year. Because whatever got to you, and I'm thinking it's probably blight, is still there. So you need to look for another location, variety, and maybe methodology. And I don't know if the method's really going to change that much. There's only so many ways to grow a potato. I will tell you that I had failure with my potato tire this year. Uh, we've got a blight that I think is the same early blight that's infected our tomatoes down here that's just been very difficult to control. So the option is to look for other crops to fill in, sweet potatoes being one of them. Uh, another option is to look for other totally unrelated crops to fill in the gaps for, calori uh, for caloric uh, count. So you might look at planting a bunch of different types of dried beans, pintos or limas or, you know, going into the fall, favas, uh, to kind of salvage out this year. Beans, highly calorically uh, dense, uh, good uh, source of protein and carbohydrate. So it actually is a better rounded food than potatoes and less plagued by disease and insect as well. So you might look at bringing in more 
beans, and sweet potatoes going into next year. Can you pull it off this year in the fall? Try it. Try it, but get get don't use don't let soil that touch those potatoes touch the the fall potatoes. Give it a shot. Let me know how it works. Uh, look for a variety of potato that has the shortest time to harvest, and uh, see if you can protect them if you have to to get maybe through the first frost or two. It's going to be tough in your your bioregion, but maybe if we have kind of a mild early winter, maybe you can pull it off. Give it a shot. Uh, but think going into other crops, specifically uh, dry beans and sweet potatoes, as a substitute if you don't find a variety of potato that will grow there well for you. Uh, sweet potatoes are pretty daggone bulletproof, so take a look at that. Let's go ahead and take another one. Hey, Jack. I remember in one of your shows you were saying that you had a uh, diesel Jetta. Um, it was a number of shows back. But I was thinking, why don't we have diesel vehicles um, I know those Jettas actually have about 50 miles per gallon um, or around about that. Why don't we have a, uh, a car that uses um, diesel technology in a hybrid situation? If you have like a hybrid um, style system hooked up to a diesel motor, I would suspect that you can have 50 to 100 miles per gallon easily. Uh, let me know what your thoughts on that. If I remember correctly, you're a mechanic in the military, probably working on diesel stuff. If there's any reason you can't use the uh, diesel for a hybrid technology car, maybe it's too much torque. Um, I'm not sure, but uh, let me know what your thoughts are on this uh, today's show. Thanks, man. Later. Uh, it's an interesting thought, and as far as the hybrid part goes, one that I've never thought of before, and it would stand to reason that if you can take an efficient gasoline engine and combine it with an electronic component, uh, hybrid, and make it uh, very fuel efficient, you should be able to take a more efficient diesel v uh, motor and do the same thing. I'm not really sure. Here's a couple things. Number one, diesel motors are more expensive. Uh, if you go look at any vehicle out there, uh, that's available with a diesel and available with gas, and you add a diesel to it, you'll be shocked at how much more expensive it is. It's really uh, obvious if you look at larger trucks like Ford F-150s, F-250s, uh, Chevy, Duramax, and things like that. Adding a diesel motor from the standard available gas motors will generally raise the price between seven and $10,000 on a vehicle. Now, on a smaller vehicle, it's not so so bad, but even with a diesel Jetta, a diesel Jetta uh, the gas ones, uh, I think the MSRP is somewhere around twenty to 21000 nicely equipped. And throw a diesel in them, you're looking at twenty five, twenty six thousand. So you're looking at three to four thousand dollars. That doesn't sound like a tremendous amount for the efficiency, and it's not if you're buying the vehicle for the efficiency. But when you're looking at something like a hybrid, um, you're you're looking at adding a premium to something already carrying a premium. So that might be part of why. The bigger issue is why aren't diesels more popular in the United States? And it's something I've never really understood. If you go to Europe, most vehicles are diesel. That's that's what they use. Uh, and uh, part of that may be that we sort of made the jump to ultra-low soul for diesel earlier than everybody else, but that doesn't explain the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s, right? So there's just been something about the American consumer that we've always viewed diesels as these big, noisy, smoky, smelly uh, things that run old buses and old trucks, when the reality is there's a lot of really great cars available in Europe, little passenger cars, uh, very similar to my Volkswagen uh, TDI, uh, that just run beautifully on diesel. 
It's a more efficient fuel. I, I can't see torque being a problem for a hybrid. That doesn't make any sense to me at all. The efficiency of a diesel motor comes from the torque. If you look at the Jetta diesel, you're looking at a horsepower rating of about 110 horsepower, uh, which as far as cars go, we would be led to believe in America that is, you know, about as uh, powerful as two squirrels and maybe one extra chipmunk thrown in for the turbo boost. But the reality is when you drive a, a, a Jetta diesel TDI, uh, the concept that it's 110 horsepower, you have a hard time accepting. Because you put it down and you get that little bit of uh, hesitation that a diesel is known for while that turbo winds up. And when that car takes off, it takes off and that torque puts you back in your seat and it accelerates, trust me folks, right through 100 miles an hour. And at 100 miles an hour, that car is still accelerating and it's still pulling. And the reason is if you look at a gas motor and what's called the torque curve or the actual point where the power meets the road, you'll see the torque go as you accelerate, it goes way up with a big spike, and then it drops way off the other side. When you look at a diesel torque curve, it comes up a little bit slow, and then it hits a point, and it doesn't keep going real high. It just stays steady, and it just stays steady all the way through the power cycle. And that's where you get all that torquiness, that power, that, uh, that acceleration capability that seems to defy the horsepower. It's also part of the efficiency. If I don't need to make as much horsepower to get the same amount of, uh, of push on my vehicle, I get greater efficiency and greater mileage. Uh, the, to give you an idea of the efficiency of a diesel motor, I have this uh, F350 I bought a few months ago. And uh, it's a 2005 6-liter diesel. And this is a massive truck. When I posted pictures of it with my RV on uh, on Facebook, people were making Jeff Foxworthy jokes about the truck being longer than the RV, which actually, and it actually is a little bit longer than my RV. So this is a heavy, big vehicle. When I'm not towing, uh, running 75 to 80 on cruise control on the highway, I get 18 miles to the gallon. That's not going to happen with a gas motor. So there's a lot of efficiency there. The issue in America with hybrids, though, I've, I've not thought about that. If anybody knows anything about, is anybody anywhere doing any research into a diesel hybrid? Uh, maybe the reason it's not been done is the damn things are so efficient anyway. Uh, when you look at a jet of diesel, 50 is a little pushing it. You could definitely get 50 out of it. You can get 70 out of it if you want to drive it like... Uh, you know, like like the people that do to try to get the most mileage they can. Driving the hell out of it, I get over 40. And, I mean, when I drive that car, I drive it. I, I look at it this way. That little car was made to go out there on the Autobahn and not get killed by uh, much uh, larger, faster cars like Mercedes-Benz and some of the bigger sports cars and things like that. And it does a damn good job. So I drive it the way it was meant to be driven. If you obey the speed limit, you know, religiously, if you don't accelerate rapidly, if you drive maybe a few miles under the speed limit, always make sure your tires are properly inflated, which I do try to do that one for safety. But if you do everything you can, that car will give you 60 miles to the gallon. Well, how many hybrids do that now? So maybe the viewpoint is that if I build a very efficient passenger car with a diesel motor, I already can exceed most hybrid performance. So why add the expense? Why not compete with the hybrid just as being a diesel vehicle? But again, anybody knows anything about a hybrid diesel uh, being worked on? I would think that Volkswagen would be the most likely candidate to do it. Let me know. I'll do some research and maybe report back next week with anything I find or anything I hear from you guys. Uh, let's, I think we have time for one more question and we'll wrap up for today. Hey, Jack, it's Dan from New York. Uh, just want to touch base with you and get your opinion on a geothermal ground loop 
and replace for a traditional uh, propane type system. I've got uh, fairly low expenses. Uh, plan on being in this location for the long term. Um, this is quite a bit of a jump as far as expenses are concerned. Just want to see what your thoughts on incurring this type of an expense would be if I was planning on staying in this location for a long period of time. Thanks for your advice. Bye. Okay, without more specifics and numbers, it's hard to be uh, direct you know, in response to your question whether you should do it or not, but that's probably okay anyway because we need to answer this question so that anybody making a similar decision can do this. Here's the thing about any kind of green technology or redundant energy or alternative energy or anything like that. We need to make these decisions based on two things. One, we can look at the reliability during a failure because we, we actually concern ourselves with things like that. So if I look at the cost of putting to get, putting solar onto my house, um, I can consider that as long as I'm putting in battery backup systems so that it's not just a grid-tied solar system. Because if it's a grid-tied solar system, I basically have no power when, when the grid's down as well. Uh, or maybe a little bit of limited draw that I can pull off of whatever's coming out of the solar panel while the sun's shining, but I don't have the... Uh, I don't have the, uh, the the capacity to generate surplus and make it through evenings and things like that I do. So the only way I can look at um, the redundancy factor is if it exists. So whether or not that's going to exist in your geothermal system is going to depend on how you're going to power the rest of the house and the pumps and the things like that to go with it. So in some ways it may be less redundant than propane. Uh, because I need electricity to, to pump fluid into the earth and I need to pump it back up. Uh, and I get, you know, I can get do heating and cooling with that type of uh, effect. So there's a lot of advantages, but then I do need some electricity. So without some type of backup generator, if you live in a place where it gets really cold, um, you're going to be less uh, likely to uh, to make it through the winter without, uh, you know, needing another source of heat than with propane. Because propane, obviously, as long as it burns, we're good. We've got heat. So we have to take that into effect. So those are the redundancy issues, and that's something you have to, it's, it's a little bit more subjective. What's your risk tolerance? How likely do you think it is in the next five to ten years that you'll need to be able to stand alone making your own energy or heat or, or whatever it is? So it doesn't matter whether this is geothermal like we're talking about or solar. Those things kind of come out the same. When it comes to making the financial decision, though, this is where we have to take all emotion out. And when we make financial decisions in our lives, we have to, like just like the earlier caller about the boat, we have to take away... These things that are like, well, I really want it, or I, I want to help the earth, or I want to save a polar bear, or whatever other thing that we put into it, and we have to get cold and calculating like a business person. So what we do is we look at our time to repayment and say, am I willing to accept that or not? So you say it's more expensive than propane, but you're also going to have a savings on an annual basis going forward. So we take the total cost of the system, and then we take the projected savings, And we take those projected savings and we do a little bit of math and we say, how many years does it take to pay the system back? If it takes five years to pay the system back, it's probably a good investment. Because not only are you going to recoup everything after five years, I guarantee you the property value is going to go up as well. So that's the other thing we need to look at. What is the projected property value increase? And then we make a mathematical decision. And that's how we do it, apart from the redundancy component, apart from being able to be energy independent. We have to look at, at the ROI. So, you know, a lot of people will look at putting solar in, but, you know, it doesn't make sense financially. Is always going to come down to how much energy can you generate, how much will that save you, and how long will you have to generate it before you're going to recoup your investment based on current and projected future electrical rates. 
And, it, and it's that simple. And you've got to make the decision that way or you'll make mistakes because you'll do things because they feel right versus are they right. And that's what I want you guys to take away today uh, from this show is that in any situation where you're talking about a large outflow of money, once you spend that money, it's gone. All you have in return for it is whatever you got. How long is it going to last and what's it going to do for you? And you need to be very careful when you're spending large amounts of it because it, it's not something you can always guarantee you can replace. People that have the most secure jobs in the world lose them uh, with a day's notice. They're sure they're secure. They're sure they're safe. They're sure that the company will have to close before they're let go and then the company does a 10% layoff and they happen to be on the list because they were overpaid or because they were in a department that's being eliminated or the company was sold and part of the deal to get the company sold was to eliminate the department. Even though the department was profitable, I was in a company that was purchased. Uh, fortunately, I wasn't in that department, but an entire department uh, that represented about 40% of the people in the company. The, the company was actually profitable, but the only but the company that was doing the acquisition was not in that business and didn't want to be in that business. So that piece was sold off to an, a, another competitor separately, and that competitor basically just bought it to dissolve it and eliminate it. And uh, maybe one or two people out of that group of 40-odd people kept their job and went to work for the competitor. And the rest of them were just eliminated, even though, even though they were doing a good job, even though the company was profitable, and even though their division was profitable. So the, the, the concept of I'm safe and secure in my job is, is asinine, honestly, folks. And you can't think that way. You, you, you can't live in a world of scarcity, but you also have to live in a world of reality and accept the fact that everything that you take for granted could be gone tomorrow, not just because the end of the world happens, but because something simple changes in your little individual world. There's like 6.7 billion people out there right now on our planet. And that means there's actually 6.7 billion worlds Because each human lives in their own world. We overlap with each other. We interact with each other. But there's things that you care about that I don't and things that I care about that you don't. Things that affect me that don't affect you and vice versa. And because of that, because of that reality that we each have this, this little component of our own little world to worry about, we have to be careful with what we do. Because no one's going to come bail you out if you go put all this money into a, a, a system like this and decide you need to sell the house and can't get your investment back and can't get out from under the house because it was too short of a term for the ROI to work out. So you need to look at all the factors and make a mathematical business-like decision. And I'll tell you that anytime you're spending more than a few hundred dollars, you need to do the same thing. And sometimes in, in certain situations, you need to do it with a few hundred dollars. But definitely, if you're spending $1,000, $5,000, $10,000, you need to put the math to work and look at the repayment. I'll give you a concrete example of how we did this. When we bought our place in Arkansas, I was comfortable doing 10% or 20% down against the mortgage, either one. And uh, 20%, of course, I don't have to pay PMI. And when I looked at not paying the PMI and putting the extra 10% into the house, I decided not to do it, and here was why. When I look at how small the PMI was and how much more the additional 10% was, it would have took 13.9 years, 13.9 years to break even. So I was better off keeping the cash in reserve since the mortgage payment was small and, and I wasn't quite as religious about not going into debt back then either. Um, but you know, it was, it was one of these things where like, hey man, a, you know, a Google AdSense check can pay the mortgage on this place. This is less than a car payment. Uh, why am I going to tie up, you know, another almost $10,000 of it and wait 13.9 years 
to, to go to par against it. Also realizing that there was more equity because I bought the house smart, couldn't do it right away, but five years into it, I could have the house appraised to get out of the PMI. And I still have the cash and reserves, and I'm still not paying the PMI, and, and I'm ahead that way. So that just made more financial sense. Now, there was an emotional part of me that said, damn it, my payment will be lower, but it didn't pass mathematical muster. It didn't pass the business decision. Mathematically, it didn't work out. And it wasn't going to make me pay the property off that much faster to go with a 20% down payment. Uh, the lender wasn't willing to do They were going to be the same interest rate either way, so there was no additional savings on interest. And, and the payment was sufficiently low as to be inconsequential. So that's just another example of the situation. That's what I want you to take away from today with all of your spending decisions in life. Run the numbers like you are a CEO and one of your employees is bringing you the request. Instead of, I want my employee, right, which is my little psyche, has come to me with a proposal. And in front of me, they've laid a business proposal. They've laid cost. They've laid return of investment. They've laid time. Uh, they've laid, you know, uh, you know, what the outlay is and what the benefits are to the company, with the company being my house. Now I sit down and I look at that and I don't have the emotional attachment and I make a business-based decision. And I think this is why people that generally work for big companies in kind of upper management positions that often have to field requests like this and make requests like this are more financially responsible with their own spending. Now there's some of them that get into the big debt trap like everybody else does, but generally, you know who's in the debt trap, folks? The middle to lower management person in the blue collar worker that never has, never sees this process. Because the first time, you know, if you get that upper management position, you have to go to a director level of above, or above and ask for money. You can go in there with all of these great ideas about what it's going to do for you, and they want a concrete, mathematical, logical case for the expenditure and return of investment. And the first time you see that, it changes the way you think. And what I'm saying is, you don't need a job to think that way. You just need to open your mind to think that way. And if you do that, you'll start making better decisions with your finances for your life going forward. And you won't do things like buy something because you really want it. You'll figure out how to buy it in a more responsible way. Going back to our earlier boat question, don't want to pick on the guy because you're a nice guy and I want you to have what you want. But putting yourself into a position where you barely meet your budget for 15 years... Not responsible. And it doesn't make financial sense. And you might have to defer that, not for the full 15 years to pay the house off, but for two to three years to pay off the car, build up some additional cash reserves of two to three months, build up a, a large down payment, get better financing on the boat for a shorter time, and then maybe even though I say not to do it, you choose to go into debt with a more open-minded uh, way to make that happen. Maybe you reduce the, the expenditure by buying a used boat and save the depreciation costs. There's a lot of ways to do these things. And the other thing that people need to realize when you're making these decisions, generally speaking, as we pay off our debt, we also figure out something else, how to increase our income. So the deferment is generally never as long as we think it is. So in any purchasing decision going forward, please act like your own CEO. Think like your own CEO of your own house. Because you're the only one that's going to do it. No one's going to do it for you. You're not working for a company where your director or your VP or your CEO, if you report to that layer, is going to say to you, justify this with logic and math. You have to do that job in your own home. Please do it. 
Your children and your spouse are depending on you to do it. And sometimes it does mean deferment, but long term it creates greater survivability for the family unit. Uh, because I promise you, you buy something you shouldn't have and you end up in a bad way because somebody loses a job. The spouse that didn't get the big benefit is going to be resentful that you did and that you're in, hard, you're in a hard way because of it. So don't let that happen to you. With that, I'm back. Glad to be back. Hope you got a lot out of today's show. And uh, I will be here Monday with another edition of the Survival Podcast. And uh, with that, this has been Jack Spierko back at you with another episode, helping you figure out how to live that better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Nobody up there cares, they're living.